0: Our second paper comes from Isabel Keller. Uh, she's a professor at the uh, Université de Toulouse-Mirée. She can't be with us today because she is very, very pregnant, but uh, Alessandra Caperdoni has kindly agreed to read her paper for us. Thank you, Alessandra. <coughs> no, I performed this yesterday, and it might be slightly longer than 20 minutes, so if you need to cut me or okay. just rush it. So the title of the paper is the Discourse on Faith in Lawrence Darrell's Alexandre Quartet. And uh, the, the writer starts with an epigraph from a Friedrich uh, Schlegel in French. Les romans sont les dialogues socratiques de l'entretemps." So the, the novels are the Socratic dialogues of our time. Considering Lawrence Darrell's constant irony towards the main religions of our time, the reader cannot but feel nonplussed by the multiplicity of religious references throughout most of his work, and more particularly in the Alexander portrait. Encompassing Justine's Jewish origins, their fascination for Baldazar's inquiries into the mysticism of the Kabbalah, Memlik Pasha's literal interpretation of the Quran, the Hosnani's Coptic faith, naively mistaken for Islam by young British Mount Olive as well as the unexpected birth of a protean, transcultural and trans saint through the figure of Elia Kub, who goes as far as having a yearly bullet in his honour on Saint George's Day. Lawrence Darren's Alexandra Quartet explores both of the language of faith and the multiple perspectives of those who attend to be the discourse in Italy. We can easily see from his own bookshelves that the Torell extensively probed into the religious question, delving into the notions of Gnosticism, the Bard of Todol, the Cathars, or Alchemy, amongst others. His miscellaneous readings testify to his unceasing inquiries into the afterlife and to his attempt at finding an answer to the basic trauma of death, thus leading him to explore various spiritual paths. Such a preoccupation can be sensed from the early lines of the portrait. Indeed, although the preface clearly states that only the city is real, the reader soon discovers that the Alexandria, which slowly takes the shape throughout the portet, has far less to do with the actual geographical landmark than with its amorous and spiritual chart. Defining it in its early pages as the great fine press of love, halfway between the Hellenic world and the Orient, Darley clearly singles it out from any other city. And I'm quoting here, capitally, what is the city of ours? Although this is obviously not the capital of Egypt, yet it is called the second capital in Mount Olive, and later on the capital of Asiatic Europe, and certainly ranks first in the novel and in Darley's initiated quest. This reminds us of the fact that Darrell held Alexandria as a central place the hint of our whole Christian culture historically bridging elusis and role. It is no wonder, then, that the city of the quartet (coughs) should slowly metamorphose into an oniric, timeless temple, detached from any realistic geography, pervaded by the sweet voice of the blind Moisin, sheltering Prince Nassim in his sarcophagus of tubular steel and lighted glass, in the dead pharaohs of Ninjamin's Babylonian barber shop, it is symbolically placed under the auspices of the solidar god in his glass coffin, that is of a long gone patron who remains out of reach both from the inhabitants of the city and from its historians. Paradoxical though it may seem, this is an acronic temple whose shrine remains desperately empty, and yet the reader is led to cross the impressive number of thresholds typograph- Typographically signaled by the regular sequences of blanks and downstairs, as if to remind him that he crossing the line between the profane and the sacred, the sacred which will not be revealed. We then realize that the temple is neither fully Egyptian nor Greek, but built on the quicksand of vanished kingdoms. That of the Pharaohs, that of Alexander, that of the British Empire reluctantly relinquishing its grip on the wake, in the wake of the Second World War precariously rising at the junction of its uh, two centers of gravity, its spiritual center, the forgotten site of the Soma, and its temporal site of <coughs> the Broker's cover. Alexandria seems likely to shatter at any moment, and often does, at least metaphorically, such as when Darley meets Justine at the Café El Bab, the doorway, by the shattered arch. Or when he walks through the city after having lost her, as survivors must walk about the streets of their native city after an earthquake. Even his return to Alexandria and the incident love and relationship with Akea, are is set under the patronage of the royal city and the Anus Mundi, a second desert of your love littered with the whitening bones of its, its size. From glory to decay, the construction of the spiritual city of the portent is thus tightly linked to the representation of the empire, and more specifically to its decline. We know the profound influence of Oswald Spengler's decline of the West on the glorious work, who copied out in one of his manuscripts Spengler's assertion that politics is the highest sorry, politics in the highest sense is life, and life is politics. Every man is nearly nearly a If willy-nilly a member of the a drama, a subject or object, there is no third alternative, Spengler explains. Obviously, such a statement could not be unnoticed by Lawrence Tarrell, whose lifelong involvement in British diplomacy prevented him from ignoring the welfare of the policy and his responsibility as a citizen. This might be the very reason which prompted him to look beyond the slime of mundane matters for the true heart of the policy, the Kingdom of the Spirit, which is not of the sword, as Pendler underlined. This quest for the Kingdom of the Spirit is aptly set in the city which enables Darwin to investigate both the religions of the book and their esoteric reinterpretations. At this point, the reader cannot fail to notice that, although the main religions are currently mentioned as the cultural backdrop against which the character's story is set, these are far from being the main object of focus. Thus, as Darley's wandering for leading to meet Barthasar, he discovers a secret profile of Justine, a student of the Kabbalah, and is thrown by the doctor into the small lodge. The reader then discovers that Darley himself has a secretly tree in hermeticism, And he, am quoting, the little suitcase containing the Hermetica and the other books of the kind has always been kept under my bed locked. Thus, it seems that Justine has seen through Darley's secret line of investigation and chosen Baldazar as the go between the initiator. Simultaneously, the initiator has revealed the one who just the secret to Darley. As a result, the text leads us into the investigation of one of the many sects and gospels of the city into the world of the secret. As the Luz and Gattari point out, the secret has a privileged but quite variable relation to perception and imperceptible, since the perception of the secret must necessarily be secret itself. There is always a perception finer than yours, a perception of your imperceptible, or what is in your box. This is exactly what happens to Darlie and Justine. Like a set of Chinese boxes, each a character's secret is revealed to the other, Yet, it is a tantalizing, perpetually undisclosed secret. This is not the place to write what I know of the Kabbalah, Darley writes. It is as if the revelation only unveiled a black hole, a dark power, which will not say its name and which functions both as, as the product and as the war machine set against the rest of society, born, born from the very hierarchy and creed it wishes to undermine. Indeed, as Deleuze points out, the secret society cannot live without the universal project of permeating all of society, disrupting its hierarchy and segmentation. Thus we find Vardas explicitly stating this point against the established dogmas. None of the great religions has done more than exclude, throw out a long range of prohibitions. But prohibitions create the desire they are intended to cure. We of this Kabbalah say, indulge, but refine. As a result, the reader learns more about the beliefs of the Kabbalah than about the Judaism, more about the secret society than about the established religious authority, while still being left in the dark, as Darley abruptly concludes, I've said enough. As a consequence, established religions, just as established political powers, are relentlessly questioned and undermined. In that respect, the descriptions of religious festivals in the portent are particularly illuminating as they highlight the blending of various cultural traditions, thus superseding the univocal, authoritative power of any one church. We may remember, for instance, a in the description of the festival of Sitna Damiana, a celebration which fairly mesmerizes the British irony it was a touching to hear Muslims sing religious songs to Damiana, a Christian saint. The description of the religious ceremony itself is even more surprising, as a Paris warden notes uh, it was a pre Christian this. That each of these young men in his scarlet biretta had become Ramses II. Damiana, a Coptic saint, was daughter to a third governor of the 3rd century AD. She convinced her father. To have a monastery built where she could worship God with forty other virgins, and to declare his uh, Christian, so, or the father, his uh, Christian faith to Emperor Di- Diocletian, for which both father and daughter were beheaded, as Pers Wardens remind us. The desert monastery where poor Damiana had her Diocletian head struck from her shoulders for the glory of our Lord. Yet so the celebration of the Coptic Saint's feast does not differ greatly from Muslim mulees. Pilgrims pitch a tent around the monastery and live there for several days while numbers of merchants or the bazaars all around. These traditions derive in fact from Pharaonic Egypt. The gods and goddesses may have been replaced by saints, but the very principle is very similar. As a result, it is no wonder that Muslim and Christian songs should emerge that the pilgrims should look like pharaohs, and that the various social classes should mingle, priests and prostitutes, servants and bankers, plotters and secret intelligence agents. The climatic description of the accent of the camel, as when a tree is pruned, enhances the paradoxical conjunction and disjunction of opposites by exposing the fragmented members of the same body. Nessim's the appar- appar- apparently anecdotal remark of religion becomes highly significant in retrospect. Did you know that all, uh, all, did you know that all early religions were built up on a self-pattern, imitating who-knows-what biological law? These words clearly function as the implicit caption to the scene which the British agent has just seen and failed to decode as it falls into the trap of Western sensitivity. Poor things, my blonde red cold, I felt frightfully ill. Eventually, the thing suggests that the various religious sects function as so many connected and simultaneously disconnected members, branching off in infinite directions, proliferating in biological osmosis with the same body, yet going their separate ways. Naturally, we may feel tempted to recognize here the seeds of the Avenue of be you members of one another, and we cannot fail to notice the precarious position of each individual. Whether Muslim or Copt, poor or wealthy, master or servant, peasant or creature, like Naruz, each individual self functions both as a distinct entity and in relation to the others. This perplexing configuration finds its climax in the Mulid of El as a Scobie is registered as a Coptic saint under a name who sounds distinctly Jewish to uh, clear why some are not even sure whether he was a Muslim or not. The transitive nature of characters and their feeds means that Alexandria is not only littered with the working bones of its exiles, it is also peopled by exiles, nomads, Badazar the Jew, Melissa the Greek, First World and the British, etc., whose intermediary, amorphous position in space and time seems to deny the existence of geographical, historical, moral and religious lines. The Alexandrians themselves were strangers and exiles, as the narrator of Mount Olive says. (coughs) These nomadic characters, existing in an in-between port, delving into the arcane mysteries of esoteric philosophies, living in a kind of limbo away from established creeds, constantly jeopardize the established order. The nomads thus appear to be at war with the religious institution, as Belus and Gatar explain. Sedentary space is striated by walls, enclosures, and roads between enclosures, while nomad space is full. The nomads are there on the land, wherever there forms a smoother space that grows and tends to grow in all directions. On the contrary, established religions are anything but multidirectional. They are not separable from a firm and constant orientation, from an imperial de jure state. They have promoted an idea of sedentarisation. <coughs> we know that himself arose against such institutions. I rather dread the word religion because I have a notion that the reality of it, the source of the minute it is uttered as a concept. I don't like the political idea inherent in religions claiming to be the only exclusive path. Instead, he expressed the wish that there should be as many religions as people. Indeed, the opposition between nomadism and religion is more complex than it first appears, since established religions constantly give birth to schisms and sects. The newly founded sect then acts as a war machine against the society's trees and thus once again mobilizes and liberates the formidable change of nomadism or absolute deterritorialization, and finally, it turns the stream of an absolute state back against the same form. Seeing from this perspective, the discourse on faith and the does not stop at deprecating the religious institution or whatever it may be. Beyond the sarcastic portrayal of a Memlik Bashan, the morbid portrait of a Faltaus Fosnani, or the stereotypical figure of the wandering Jew, thoroughly raises the question of the distinction between religion and faith, between the blind obedience to a social code, and the intimate, senseless, self-questioning of the soul. Thus, per Swardian's ironic aphorism, religion is simply art bastardized out of all recognition, is to be right in the light of his notes to clear, also remember that where is faith there is doubt. These are seemingly contradictory statements evince the paradoxical nature of the religion as a sedentary, deathly power of control and the charge of the Thus the irrevocable denial of the legitimacy of a religious institution is only valid in as much as we are dealing with the stereotyped colonialist representation of the other's creed. Memlik Pasha is thus seen through Nassim's point of view as the representative of Muslim power crushing the cops. Paladari is seen as the son of a tall Jew dressed in riding in a sledge by the naive Darley, while Find House is seen as the crippled authoritarian coped by young inexperienced Mount Olive. In each case, the other is ostracized by the onlooker's gaze, and considered as a potential threat to the system. Simultaneously, the text strives to break free from the institutional mold, to disorganize, destabilize our conception of the other, to break apart from the fixed subservient representation of faith through a radically new approach of history. Indeed, we may remember that Darwin justified his choice of Alexandria thus, historically, it was a sort of vortex in which the East and West met in a deadly embrace. The mythologies of the ancient religions of the East influenced the Greek or and Judaic cultures that produced that bloody mixture we call European history. Alexandria is one of the principal seeds which germinated Europe. End of quote. Quite clearly, Dorelli is interested in the deadly embrace of conflicting creeds, in the bloody mixture that came out of it and in the germination that ensued. In other words, he is interested in religious history as the multiple stage of birth-life-death process. Consequently, the deconstruction of the representation of religion and the exposure of the dogmas of imperialist powers is inseparable from the poetic mysticism of the characters of spiritual quest. This is why Alexander, Cleopatra, Arsino, Aphrodite, Carpocrates or Valentinus are called in to build up a web of correspondences with the characters of the quartet, ensuring that the history of the city is not limited to the near documentation on the rise and fall of empires, but takes a shape and reflection of what Spengler calls a memory picture, in which memory is conceived as a higher stage, a perfectly definite kind of imagining power, which enables experience to traverse each particular moment subspecie eternitatis, as one point in an integral made up of all the past and all the future, and it forms the necessary basis of our looking backward, or self-knowledge, and our self-conflection, and of course... In other words, the Rose Alexandria is no more an Egyptian than an Hellenic city, no more a Muslim than a Jewish or Coptic city, but the city of self-exploration, of spiritual initiation, the city of encounter with the other. Five races, five languages, a dozen trees, more than five sexes, as the Institute warns us. In this new cumulative organic world picture which is uh, so much at odds with the linear and causal conception of history, legendary heroes, conquerors, mythical and mystical figures appear as the dialogic counterparts of the novel's characters. As such, they embody their hidden alter-egos, mentors or ancestors, and engage into a vibrant, albeit anachronic, intercourse. This is how Doré's characters, just as, as their historical or mythical counterparts, acquire a significance almost independent of the actions they engage in, they hang above the, the time track, as Darrell was wont to remark of Rufus and Joyce characters. As a result, it is no wonder if the reader fails to draw a line between Justine, Cleopatra, or Arsinoe, just as they faced to draw a line between Melissa, Justine, and Leah, between past, present, and future. This is how Darwin man- manages to create not a series of novels, but a continuum that is an endless cycle of death and rebirth, what Spendler called a picture of endless formations and transformations of the marvellous waxing and waning of organic force. From this perspective, the representation of the various established religions appear intimately linked to that of the various empires. The rise and fall against the failure of any linear, hierarchic, and univocal kind of worldview. The fact that, that Alexandria should have sustained the assault on, of a multiplicity of priests and warriors shows that its different reality lies in its resilience, in what the Spengler calls the primitive strength of its culture, springing from the soil of a mother region to which it remains firmly bound throughout its whole life cycles. Alexandria then appears as one of the main phases of the deus of as the spiritual remnants of a deeper faith which transcends political and religious barriers. again, thank you for that paper.